That is not the scripture we're going to be studying today. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to verse 36, but that helps sort of set the stage where we're going today. That is a passage that um, you may or may not have come across. More than, many of you have come across this text in your study of experiencing God, as I have many years ago. And uh, it sort of helps us understand how Christ then began to engage in ministry and fulfill the acts that he fulfilled. Uh, Jesus went around and he watched what God was doing and because of relationship with God, God would reveal to him what he was doing and he would simply join God in what God was doing. And as a result of him joining God in what God was doing, he was incredibly successful in the ministry that he engaged in. In other words, he understood that God was actively involved in human history. We began this study a couple of Sundays ago in Acts chapter 2 where we began to realize that God is now actively involved in human history. He's not some God who is up on a throne, sort of disconnected and disassociated with the things that are happening on this planet in this life. He is orchestrating every activity and every event in human history in order to accomplish the plan and the purpose that he has preordained. He has predetermined determined in advance. God is actively working. And in Acts chapter 2, we see this beautiful context where the Holy Spirit of God is a part of the activity of God from the very foundation, the very beginning of time. In Genesis 1-1, the Holy Spirit has been present. But now in Acts 2 is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made his disciples in Acts 1. We understood that this mighty wind of God was to come down from heaven and it would light on the disciples. And he promised them that that John who baptized with water, he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And upon being baptized with the Holy Spirit, they would receive power. And that power was for the purpose of being his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's why he promised the person of the Holy Spirit was so that they could receive power to be witnesses of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Then we saw in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 6, uh, 5, I think it was, through verse 13, where we saw this mighty work, this mighty activity of God as a result of the wind, the Holy Spirit coming down and falling upon them. They received the Holy Spirit, were filled with the Spirit. Then we saw how the sound of what happened in that upper room drew people unto God. We saw that God is continually, constantly in pursuit of lost people. He was in pursuit of you. And as a result of his pursuit of you, he then pulled you or drew you unto himself. And once he drew you under himself, he got your attention by seeking to meet your need. And then he prepared your heart for the message of Jesus Christ. That's what has happened so far in Acts chapter 2, 1 through verse 13. God is preparing those that he has drawn by his spirit to this beautiful setting, this scene where crowds, Thousands of people have gathered in order to hear this beautiful presentation from Simon Peter of the gospel. And now this mighty witness is going to stand boldly under the influence of the Holy Spirit and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. If you are reminded of Peter, when Jesus was arrested, he fled, he hid, he denied Jesus. He ran after uh, he was caught uh, being a disciple of Jesus when he denied him three times and the rooster crowed that he was under this... This, this depression until Jesus found him and redeemed him back into himself. This coward 
who once denied knowing Jesus, is now, having been received of the Holy Spirit, received the Holy Spirit, now filled with the Holy Spirit, is going to now project, he's going to preach the gospel to thousands of people who are gathered there in Jerusalem on this beautiful particular day. These are the people that God has drawn for this time in history to be able to receive and to hear and understand the message of the gospel of Jesus, and they will then put their faith and trust in him as their Savior and as the Lord. There are two points to Simon Peter's message, but there are multiple subpoints. Just thought I'd let you know. And if you've noticed, this is a lot of scripture, so we're going to run through this very quickly, and I promise you we'll get through this in five minutes. Should we take a bathroom break now? No. Mike, do you need to go? Okay, I just wanted to know. Okay. Two points to his message. Number one, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, this mighty witness says that this is the moment of salvation. This is the moment of salvation. The moment of salvation has now arrived. He has described, he has talked about through, through his writing, Luke has about all of this preparation and this pulling and this drawing of this crowd. The Holy Spirit has fallen upon the disciples and he has filled the disciples now with the Holy Spirit. He has fulfilled the promise of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and in other passages in the Gospel of John. Now having received and now being filled with the Spirit, they are going to fulfill the purpose for which the Holy Spirit was given to them. And Simon Peter is going to stand up and he is going to project that this is the moment, the moment in human history when God, by his sovereign design, is saying this is the time for salvation. This is it. Notice there are three aspects about this moment. First of all, he pours out his Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14, we begin by seeing how the pouring of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit begins to take place. He is beginning now to explain exactly what is going on. As you remember, there was some confusion, there was some supposition, there was some presumption, there was some misunderstanding about why these disciples were acting so strangely. And so Simon Peter is going to stand up. Notice verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven... He's standing with them. Remember, Matthias had been replaced by Judas, and now there are 12. And after having received and being filled with the Spirit, now these people have been drawn. Simon Peter now steps up to the platform, and he then exhorts the crowd. Notice, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. He's shouting, he's proclaiming. They'd have a, the, the benefit of a microphone like I have today in a large setting like this. And if you can imagine, there were several thousands of people there. And as a result of that, he had to broadcast, he had to proclaim, he had to shout out the message. And so he is addressing them with his voice, the loud voice. He lifts it up to the Lord and he says, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem. He's acknowledging that there are some who, who are from Judea, who are there from Jerusalem, but there also is a group of internationals who are there. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. He is exhorting the crowd to listen to his words. Pay close attention. Uh, years ago, I went 
to Brazil with a missionary, and uh, this missionary, uh, um, this evangelist missionary, now continues to do evangelistic events. He's up in his senior adult years now, but he he would always say, "Lock in, lock in," and he would multiple times, dozens of times in his message, he would point to the crowd and he'd say, "Lock in, lock in," and the idea was to pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is important to you, and we kind of made a kind of a joke about that during our. Our time together in Brazil for that week when he would constantly say, lock in, lock in, lock in. It didn't translate very well in Portuguese, but he had always said it and the translator tried to repeat it. But that's what Simon Peter's saying. He said, lock in, pay attention to what I'm about to say because this is important for you. Lock in. Verse 15, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. This is sort of a humoristic way of approaching and defending the disciples. If you take a notice, he's explaining to them, he's exhorting or exonerating the disciples here. He's trying to sort of present his case that these guys are not in fact drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Now, it is possible for those who are alcoholics to be drunk at nine o'clock in the morning, but this is actually nine o'clock in the morning for the Jew, for the one who is is seeking salvation through Judaism. And more than likely at nine o'clock in the morning, 99.9% of the Jews, this was a time for prayer. And so he's saying to them, we are not drunk, as you suppose. This is really a time of prayer. And so it's kind of of a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. He's kind of sort of exonerating the disciples. They are not drunk. But let me explain to you now the day that this is, the day in question. This is the reason why. Notice his reason. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He's beginning now to explain the day. And this day was not only prophesied in other places, but he now begins to highlight the prophet Joel. And he says about Joel, and he's quoting here from Joel 2, verse 28, 29, and later on down in our next point, he'll do 30 and 32. Joel 2, 30 and 28 and 29, notice what he says. And in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. The last days referenced here are the days that they understood because they were awaiting for the promised Messiah to arrive. And he's saying to them, these are the last days that you have been awaiting. The Messiah has arrived. He has come. He has already been here. These are the last days. He's telling them that. When God will pour out his spirit. This word pouring out is similar to a cup being filled and you're pouring it out. It's an overflow. It's a flooding of the spirit of God on, notice, all flesh. Not just a few of God's special anointed people for special causes, but upon all people. Who are the people? Both men and women. Not only men and women, but all of the people who are his servants. Notice that the outpouring of the Spirit of God are upon those who are servants. These are the people who are going to serve him. And then he addresses how these people serve him. But the thrust of the text that he's trying to help implement here through the Gospel of Joel, a a passage I believe that those who were present were very familiar with, would that understand that the day that has been promised, the day they have been waiting has now happened and the Spirit of God has been poured out upon them and this is the beginning of the last days. He has poured out His Spirit. Not only has it poured out His Spirit, but He's provided then 
for signs. And he begins to describe the signs from Joel chapter 2, verse 30 through 32. And Joel says, as he says in his message, I will show wonders in heavens above the signs of the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty scary to me. These are the promised signs in Joel. And he began to take a look at that and said, well, what does this have to do with this moment and this time? And uh, so we began to understand that what Joel is talking about is a time to come. Because if you take a look at the text, it says then, after blood, it says, before the day of the Lord comes. Before the day of the Lord comes. These are signs that are going to take place before the day of the Lord comes. What does it mean before? The prophecies of Joel have really two fulfillments. They have a fulfillment now... And this is the beginning of that fulfillment. And there will be a long period of time in which this fulfillment will begin to unfold, will eventually unwrap itself and reveal its complete fulfillment in many years from now. But this is the beginning, he's saying, of the end of those times. And then he talks about here, notice, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. What great and magnificent day? The day when Christ returns. And so the purpose of this promise is really what he's trying to display or trying to explain to his disciples is that there is a coming judgment that will take place. And the promised Messiah and the signs that were given while he was here are only the beginning of an unfolding of more signs to come. And those signs are a broadcast of the greater signs that will come. And so what he's saying here is that God is now providing signs in which he is indicating to you that this moment of salvation is now because now is the moment. Tomorrow will be too late and the time of repentance is at hand and this is the moment of your salvation because soon judgment is coming. And so it's, it's imperative, it's important, it's, it's, it's of real urgency that you understand that this message that that we are delivering to you is of such importance that soon the end will come and that great and magnificent day when Christ returns to set up his kingdom on the earth will happen and the time and the moment for your salvation will have happened then three we see his preparation for salvation he's prepared them for salvation it's a beautiful passage and I think begins kind of the foundation of, of what a lot of the early preaching was from. In verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice the preparation of this moment of salvation. Uh, through this beautiful preaching from the prophet of Joel, he begins to help them understand that, that there's a reassurance. Let me reassure you, he says. Now, here's the reassurance. The reassurance is that it shall come to pass. That God is a God of his word. And because he is a God who has promised in his word that these things will happen. What things? That the Messiah will come. 
and that this Messiah will prepare you for the judgment, and through that preparation you'll be saved. Let me just, let me just help you. Right up front, he says, let me prepare you in reassuring you that God is a God who keeps his word. Now, for those of us who turn to Christ for salvation, that's a wonderful assurance. But for those of us who reject Christ as our Savior it's, uh, and who forfeit salvation, that's not going to be much of a reassurance, is it? But it's reassuring them who are waiting for the promised Messiah that God fulfills his word. Isn't it great to know that God who promised fulfills his word? Every promise that he has ever promised, God is so faithful that he will fulfill his word. That's the reassurance that we have. But notice in the reassurance, there's a responsibility. For he says after reassuring them that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, everyone who calls, I like that word, everyone. He's not being selective. He's including all who are present in this address. For every one of you who call upon the name of the Lord. The word call is an interesting word. is a word that helps us understand that what he is calling them to do is to turn from self and to turn in dependence upon God and to put their trust in his name. Why put his trust in his name? The name of Jesus talks about his attributes. It talks about and it references who he is. And so because he claimed to be the Messiah, because he is the Savior, they are to turn from a salvation in which they are saving themselves and put their dependence upon Jesus as their Savior. And they are to put their trust in as they call upon the name of the Lord. And notice the promise. The reason why they should do that is because you will be saved. That's a beautiful promise. You will be saved. That is, that is a verb here. That is a verb that indicates that that it is not something that is dependent upon anything that they do, but it is completely dependent upon what God does for them. I was talking to somebody this week, and we were kind of, kind of referencing uh, a situation where someone was describing themselves as waiting on God to reveal his will for them. And uh, as I was talking to them about this, uh, that old familiar goofy illustration or story, whichever it is, sort of came up. And all I did was mention it, and they knew exactly what I was talking about. And as I begin to mention it here, you're going to know exactly what I'm, what I'm about to say, because I'm sure you've heard this illustration before. There was some severe floods that hit a certain part of the country, and the water began to rise, and, and uh, this certain family had found themselves on top of their roof because the, the waters were rising so quickly that uh, to save themselves from danger, from peril, they were on top of the roof, and the water was continuing to rise, and they knew they were in peril, they knew they needed help, and so they were crying out to God for help, and along came a boat. You know the story? Yeah, you know the story. And offered assistance. And no, 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 no. We're, we're waiting on God. We're waiting on God. So they go away. And then a helicopter comes. And the water's up to their feet. And then they say, can we give you help? No, no, we're waiting on God. And then they die in the flood. And they stand before God and say, God, we don't understand. We waited on you and you didn't save us. He said, well, I sent you a boat and I sent you a helicopter. What more did you want? Right? I think that's what Simon Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying to those he's addressing. They're waiting for a Savior. They're waiting for the Messiah. And they're crying out to God, and they're searching his word, and they're seeking his wisdom, and they're saying, Lord, send the Messiah to liberate us, to free us. And, and what Simon Peter is saying, having received and being filled with the Spirit, is saying, the moment of salvation has arrived. This is the moment for your salvation. The waiting is over. Salvation is available. 
Doesn't mention Jesus yet. He sort of preps them in this moment. Salvation is ready. Salvation is available. No more work necessary. It's all been done for you. This is the moment that Joel talked about and others in the prophetic writings. The moment of salvation is now. Secondly, notice the means of salvation has arrived. Not only is there a moment, but there's a means. By which or by whom are we saved? It's important to get not just the moment, but the means of our salvation right. For there is salvation in no other name except Jesus. And there are a lot of people who miss that. There are three things that Simon Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talks about. Number one, he talks about his crucifixion. Number two, he talks about his resurrection. And number three, he talks about his ascension or his exaltation. Let's quickly look at that. The means of salvation described in the crucifixion of Jesus. And every gospel presentation, I think, is important for us to understand that we need to talk about the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Christ. The crucifixion, Simon Peter says in verse 22, men of Israel, Again, notice he's exhorting them, hear these words that I'm speaking, this Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. What's the proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be? He did these incredible mighty works, these wonders and these signs. And there are some who believe that these passages point to Jesus only and only Jesus. And while, as we read here in just a minute, that can be also accredited to Jesus, and I think there is some, there is some pointing, there is some direction to regard to, to Jesus here himself, because Jesus certainly did do mighty works, and, and he did incredible wonders, and he did many signs. I mean, he walked on water, he raised the dead, he healed the blind, he I mean, he, did, he fed thousands of people. And so they, they, they had witnessed Jesus doing these mighty works, these wonders and these signs. And they didn't contest the miraculous things that Jesus did. They contested them because he claimed to be the Son of God. And so they, they witnessed these mighty works, these people that he's addressing. More than likely, not all of them saw these mighty things that Jesus did, but there were some in the crowd who could attest the, to the reality of these, these mighty works and these wonders and these signs that Jesus did. And so it could reference him, and I, I think there is a reference here, but I think more importantly to that, I think it also talks about the signs and the wonders here that are at work in the judgment that is coming. And so he talks about then the power of God at work through Jesus. And then he talks about verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Notice this plan that God is executing. They gave, he gave Christ as a gift to them. And this is an interesting paradox here. It talks about the predestination of God and the free will of man. And there's, there's a lot of contention in the church today about that. If we're predestined, then how can we have free will and all of that kind of stuff? Well, if God predestines me to do certain things and therefore I really don't have free will, I'm kind of like a puppet on the string. And, and so we have several debates going on in the church today about all of this. And so this certainly alludes to that paradox, really it does. But here, through this beautiful text that Simon Peter is proclaiming, he's saying to them 
that Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection was a part of the predestination, the predetermined act of God. Not only did he foreknow it, but he actively worked it out to fulfill his will. Christ's death on the cross was an act of God working in human history to redeem a lost humanity. He, notice it says, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of God. God had a definite plan. Jesus was not an oops. It was not a, oh, I, I instituted this plan of salvation. It didn't quite work, so now I need to send a Jesus to, to, to provide a better way, a different way, a determined way. No, it was the definite plan of God to send Christ so that he could live a perfect, sinless life, to die on the cross for sins that he didn't commit, so that through our faith in him, we could be saved. It was foreknown by God. It was predestined, predetermined by him. And so Simon Peter basically says, you, you think you crucified him, but really God ordained it that you do such a thing. But to escape human responsibility, notice that he says, but you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You crucified him, and you killed him. Yes, man still has free will. And even though God predetermined, preordained that it happened, they still had a responsibility, and they were guilty for the death of Christ on the cross. And so we too, like them, stand guilty. Why? Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, all of us, because of our sin against God, caused the death of Christ, and it was our sins that crucified him on that cross called Calvary. And because of that, then we, like them, crucified this Jesus. So we see the crucifixion of Jesus in the text as a part of, of his message, and then he goes right into the resurrection. Long narrative. I'm going to read through this very quickly. The resurrection of Christ. Key element in the gospel, and the reasons why the gospel is so powerful. Verse 24, but God raised him up, loosening the pains of death. That word pangs talks about birth pains. And any woman in here and any man who has been with his wife in labor knows that labor, while very intense, is only a short period of time. Praise the Lord. Aren't you glad it only lasts less than 24 hours? All right. <laughs> because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He talks about the power of God on display. It was temporary. Even though Christ died on the cross, it was a temporary death. And death, like birth pains, could not keep him in the tomb. It was not possible for him to be held by death. It didn't have sufficient power to keep him in the grave. Aren't you glad about that? And then he promised in Scripture through David. Notice he begins now to quote from David, from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And David says concerning him. Now David, is, as you read this, don't misunderstand or misrepresent this, but Jesus here is being talked about in first person. David is writing in first person as if he was Jesus. He, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing as if he were then declaring the words of Jesus on his behalf. I, Jesus, saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. I just want to make a little note there real quick. 
that through the crucifixion and even previous to his resurrection, he was glad. He never lost his joy, nor did he ever lose his hope. I wonder what circumstance you're in right now. As painful as it is to you, has caused you to lose your gladness, your joy, and your hope. If Christ, in doing what he did, was glad to do it, was able to rejoice, and was able to still be hopeful, what circumstance do we have to cause us to forfeit any of those three things in our lives? Just a side note. Verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Hades is a dwelling place for the dead. Or let your Holy One, that's a name for the Messiah, see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He's talking about here the promises of the scriptures through the prophet of David, speaking in the first person, and then he moves into this incredible argument, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw foresaw, and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David, as great a man as he was, he's saying, died and has a tomb. Great man of God, great prophet of God. But he did not rise from the dead there is no tomb for Jesus why because Christ was raised from the dead that's the promise that we find in scripture but notice the proclamation of now then the the disciples themselves this Jesus verse 32 God raised up and of that we are all witnesses You shall be my witnesses, Jesus said. Didn't he say that? Witnesses of what? Witnesses of what? Of the resurrection. They saw him firsthand. They didn't just hear about it and read about it in the prophets. They didn't just believe it from the word of God. But they experienced the power of the resurrection of Jesus as they put their faith and trust in him. And notice now the exaltation of Christ as he closes now this part of his message, beginning with verse 33. He exalts, he elevates Christ. His crucifixion, his resurrection, now his exaltation. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I think it's interesting here, as it begins to elevate or exalt Christ to this glorious position, he talks about the promotion of Jesus. He talks about the promotion of Jesus being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Christ, who you crucified and 
who you put in a tomb was raised not only from the dead, but he was exalted to the right hand of God. Where is Jesus currently? He's telling them he's not dead. He's not in a tomb. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's been promoted. He's sitting there in this incredible place of honor, of power, of authority and position. He has a promotion. Notice his provision because he then describes Jesus having himself received the Holy Spirit is now sharing authority with God the Father in that Jesus now is sending the Spirit. He received the Spirit. Now he's sending the right hand of the Father. And now with the Father, sharing authority with the Father, he is now sending out the Holy Spirit upon those who were his disciples. Notice his posture. For David says in verse 34, he calls him Lord. How can David, being king, saying that this Jesus is one of his heirs, is now called Lord? Because you see, he is The Messiah, he is the Savior. While he is a part of the fulfillment of the promise of God, where God promised David that one of his heirs would sit on the throne, this heir that is sitting on the throne, his name is Jesus. But this Jesus, while his heir, is also his Lord. And his posture now, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, is David's Lord. This is huge for them. Because David was huge in their faith. And a large part of their... their, their, their religious practice. And if David now calls him Lord, what should they call him? Notice his power. Power over what? His enemies. He will set at your right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is now the conquering king. He was, he, was, he was victorious over sin and death. And now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And now he is conquering king. That's his power. But notice then his position. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Because God has made him both the Messiah and the Lord, he is saying to them, you must make him your Lord. Now this is huge for them. They rejected him. They put him on trial. They found him guilty. They crucified him. Before that, they mocked him. They mocked him before and during the crucifixion. They turned their backs on him. And now, all of a sudden, being drawn by the Spirit of God because of the that took place and they gathered God is pulling them and drawing them they're hearing this message now this this beautiful convicting Holy Spirit is beginning now to be projected through the 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 reception and the filling the Holy Spirit through this through the boldness of Simon Peter who stands up now in front of this mob of thousands of people and is proclaiming that Jesus Christ because he is sitting now at the right hand of the Father is now your Lord And you need to receive him as such. What does all this mean to us? What, how does this relate to us today? Well, God is drawing us like then, still into an intimate love relationship with Jesus as he did nearly 2,000 years ago. And aren't you glad about that? 
I don't care how distant you may be from God right now or how far you have run or what you've committed or what you think you've done. You cannot outrun the the long arm of God to draw you into himself. And for most of us in here, there was a time and a moment in our lives when we were lost and dying in our sin. And he called us by name. He drew us unto himself. He revealed our need and showed us that Christ was the answer to that need. And we put our faith and trust in him. That was the moment of our salvation. And the means by which we were saved was Jesus. Where were you when that happened? Do you remember? I know I do. It was on a Sunday night in church. You know, we had church on Sunday night back then. How many of you remember that? It's senior adult day, right? Right. And uh, it was Sunday night service, man. It was just like Sunday morning, but it was Sunday night. We had songs, and we had an offering, and we had preaching, and we had invitations. And then we all went out to Kip's Big Boy and had a big hamburger afterwards. Do you remember those days? I do. I was a kid back then, man. That was a treat to go to Kip's Big Boy to have a big hamburger afterwards. Man, I don't know what they put in that secret sauce, but it was good. And I remember sitting about uh, three, four, five, six rows in the back right here from the front. And my dad, who was preaching that night, came time for the invitation. And we were singing some hymn, I'm sure it was, and people were holding their hymn books, and we were singing a hymn. And, and I sat right there, and I remember that was the moment when I felt a tug from the Spirit of God drawing me unto himself. And it was so strong and so forceful I couldn't sit still. I couldn't ignore it. I couldn't avoid it. I couldn't push it aside and deny it any longer. I'd asked many questions about it and had been given many answers. But that was the night, that was the moment in which I couldn't say no to him any longer. And I stepped out of that seat and walked down that aisle, took my father's hand and told him that I wanted to trust Jesus as my savior and making the Lord of my life. The moment for me was then. The means for me then was Jesus, and it still is. For there is no other means except him. When was your moment? Can you dust off the cobwebs of your mind and go back as far as maybe a couple of decades ago and remember that moment? Remember the tug and the pull and the draw and all of the activity of God preparing you for that final beautiful moment when you just in your heart you could not say no any longer and you step forward and you place your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. For many of us here this morning we remember that moment but there are some here this morning who have never had that moment. We think by some osmosis or we think by some special privilege because we're related to someone or because we attend or give or do or work, that we're safe enough. But the only means of your salvation is Jesus. And if you've not had that moment in which you've turned from your sin and trusted Jesus as your Savior, you have not had that moment. And in a moment, we're going to sing an invitation hymn and we're going to stand and we're going to invite you to go to the Next Steps area and respond 
to the moment in which the Holy Spirit is drawing you unto himself and calling you by name. And I wonder how you will respond. The only way to escape judgment and the only way to know real life is by responding to that moment, placing your faith and trust in Jesus as the only means by which you're saved. Have you had that moment? And have you responded to that moment? Let's pray.